The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Is it on now? Sounds better. Well, um, good morning, everyone. Um, amazed to see a large crowd here. It's a, larger than I'm used to seeing at many centers where I teach. And uh, I'm very grateful for the invitation to speak here. Uh, yesterday we did have a day long uh, that lasted all day. And so this morning I'm topping this off with this talk. And then pretty much right after the talk I'm leaving for the airport to get home tonight yet by midnight. Um, I live in Wisconsin where it's much colder than it is here. And um, I don't know titles for Dharma Talks. I don't believe are announced ahead of time. I don't think so. So you may not have known what you were getting in for this morning. (laughs) Some people are laughing because they were at the day long and they know. Um, The title of my talk is How Clinging to Gender Identity Subverts Enlightenment. And obviously there are a few operative words in that title. One of them is clinging, and another one is identity. And the third one, of course, is gender, as in gender identity. Uh, A version of this, what I'm going to say today, has been published some time ago, maybe in 2010 or 11, I can't remember exactly, in Inquiring Mind. Uh, So you can find it there. Uh, It's also on my website, though the other day I noticed some mistakes in it. And uh, it's coming out, there's an issue of the Sati Journal coming out very soon, uh, published by one of the organizations that is associated with this building. It's hard for me to keep them straight, and it will be uh, in that article as well. In addition, um, I just got a book contract with Shambhala Pubs to turn it into a book, so uh, a semi-popular short book. So in about two or three years, that'll be available I want to begin my comments on how clinging to gender identity subverts enlightenment, um, first by telling a very brief story and then by uh, quoting a passage from one of the, uh, one of the Pali suttas. Um, I was once introduced to give this talk, and this, uh, the person who was introducing me, who happened to be the Dharma teacher at the center, apparently didn't understand very well what was going on because he introduced it not as how clinging to gender subverts enlightenment. He was introducing me as how gender subverts enlightenment. (laughs) Obviously a very critical mistake. (laughs) Because as we know from basic Buddhist teachings, phenomena are not at fault. It's our confusion that's at fault. And especially our confusion that becomes out as clinging or aversion, which fundamentally are the same thing in the long run. And part of my contention is that there's a huge amount of clinging that surrounds our ideas about gender, and that that clinging involves a huge amount of suffering, as clinging always does, according to basic Buddha Dharma. So um, I want to start by citing, reading from the Bahia Sutta, which is uh, found in a, the text called Udana, which is part of the Kudaka Nikaya, the fifth of the five Nikayas of the Pali Canon. And I'll tell the story very briefly, because to read the whole text would take too long. But um, there's a person living in South India who is a serious practitioner. 
He has never met the Buddha. This is during the lifetime of the historical Buddha. He has never met the Buddha, but he is a very sincere practitioner, very good practitioner, and many people around him think that he must be an enlightened being, and they make offerings to him as such. And he also begins to think he is an enlightened being. But then some of his friends who have died and gone to other realms come to him in a vision and tell him that he's not even close to being an arhat. <laughs> and so he says, what can I do? Uh, what can I do to become an arhat? And they tell him there is this teacher living in North India called the Buddha who is an arhat and he can teach you. So he takes off walking as fast as he can to find the Buddha. He finds the bu- where the Buddha is dwelling, and um, he's not quite there. And he asks, well, where is the Buddha? And his, the monks say, well, he's gone into town for, to, to take alms, to ask for alms. So he runs off to town. He finds the Buddha. He sort of tears at his robes and says, you must teach me the, the Dhamma. You must teach me the Dhamma. And Buddha says, this isn't the proper time. I'm out on alms rounds. I'll teach you later. And, and Bahia says, uh, it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the blessed one's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O blessed one. Teach me the Dhamma, O well-gone one, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And this interchange, as so often happens, goes on three times. And the third time, the Buddha finally relents. And so he teaches him. And the passage is is very short. I'll read the passage in full. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will only be the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia. There is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Very succinct, very straightforward teaching. Through hearing this brief explanation of the Dhamma from the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth right then and there was released from the effluence through lack of clinging sustenance. Uh, Having exhorted Bahia of the bark cloth with this brief explanation of the Dhamma, the Blessed One left. And Bahia turns out to have been prescient in some way because just a very short time later he was gored by a cow and died. So if he hadn't insisted on getting the teachings then and there, uh, he would have died uh, a samsaric being as it was. He died uh, fully released, which the Buddha confirms in a later conversation with his disciples, and they have uh, a memorial built to him, and we have the record of that teaching. Now, um, I taught this material very recently at another meditation center, and 
I was quite amazed, but one of the students came up to me later and she said, when you said the scene there is only the scene, I took it down in my notes as S-C-E-N-E. It's S-E-E-N. And herd is H-E-A-R-D. <laughs> she had taken it down as H-E-R-D, which is almost like uh, introducing the talk as gender subverts enlightenment. What? <laughs> so um, the point here is really in these lines that when there is only the cognized and the cognized and all the other things we said, then Bahia, in terms of that, there is no you in, in there. In other words, when one does not add all sorts of extra conceptualizations and projections to raw, what raw awareness brings us, what bare attention brings us, we are no longer constructing ego because ego is constructed in reference to the feeling that there's something truly existing out there. And between presupposing there's something truly existing out there, we then presuppose something truly existing in here. And then we have duality, and if we have duality, we are obviously very far from um, release, from uh, nibbana, from giving up, clinging. So that's that's the teaching. When there is no, when there is the cognized only in the cognized, then there is no you in terms of that, no you in terms of that. The sense of self arises in conjunction with solidifying the sense of outside. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, which is where I have my Dharma home, uh, we have a statement that's very simple and very basic that explains uh, what I'm trying to say here. And the statement is, there is one ground, two paths, and two fruitions. We talk a lot about the place where we start is the ground. The path is what we do with it. And the fruition is what happens when we work well with our working basis. So ground path and fruition in terms of the Eightfold Path, for example, the ground is Sheila or ethics. Without that ground, you're not going to get very far. The path is meditation, uh, mental cultivation, and the fruition is prajna or clear seeing, insight into things as they are, which cannot arise without a foundation of ethics. And for most people, a lot of work uh, sitting on our little bottoms, as well as carrying what we learn sitting on our bottoms into our everyday lives, which is just as important. If meditation is left on the cushion in the Dharma hall and we never carry it out with us, what good is it? It's not very useful. The one ground is the fact that fundamentally what happens is the same for everyone. The two paths is what do enlightened beings do with that one ground. The one ground is, is our experience. We have senses. We do not try to shut the senses down. We don't blame our senses or the objects of our senses for what our minds do with it. It's not, you know, the, the object of our craving is innocent. It's not the object that makes us crave. It's what we do with the object that makes us crave and causes us suffering, period. 
Nobody can ever blame their relationship with the world on the world itself. It's not, it's all about what we do with what we experience. So the two paths, one path is to create duality, to say, I'm real, that's real, you make me feel a certain way. You make me feel a certain way? That's nonsense. That's utter nonsense. You make me feel a certain way. An untrained person lets themselves feel a certain way, and that feeling can be so strong that you think you have no alternative, but in fact it's one's own mind creating the clinging and therefore uh, responsible for the suffering that results. The other path is the path of not of non-duality, of recognizing the interdependence of self and other, that they co-arise together, that neither is independent, and also that therefore there's no ego, there's no permanent abiding self either here or there, because everything we experience is always changing. So those are the two of the three marks of Buddha Dharma, the mark of anatta or egolessness, and the mark of impermanence or anicca. The third is when we mishandle. The third of dukkha is what happens when we mishandle the world that we experience to create solidified self, solidified other. Uh, I don't think I'll read to you again what the Buddha said about when there is no you, when you don't make the cognized into more than simply a cognition. There's no you there. If there's no you there, there's no you here. If there's no you in either place, that is the end of suffering. And notice he says, just this, just this is the end of suffering. It's not such a big deal. And it's definitely not going someplace else or changing the world or um, you know, something that we don't experience all the time. It's just that we experience it and then um, don't notice what's going on. So based on that, I want to read a statement from my paper on how clinging to gender identity subverts enlightenment. Um, you know, because there's been a lot of discussion about gender and Buddhism and gender, blah, blah. But what I think a lot of people haven't realized is that clinging to gender, clinging to our notions about gender, is very dangerous to our Buddhist practice. And it actually is very destructive of ever attaining much realization. Because it means we're still caught up in a lot of duality and a lot of fixation so long as we cling to gender in pretty much any way. The basic problem with conventional approaches to gender is that the immediate, often unavoidable perception that someone is either a man or a woman instantaneously brings with it a whole host of assumptions, expectations, and restrictions. Right? The unavoidable perception, the immediate, often unavoidable perception that someone is either a man or a woman instantaneously brings with it a whole host of assumptions, 
expectations, and restrictions. There is obviously no problem with the immediate perception. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. There is no problem with the immediate perception. Gender designations as conventional agreed-upon labels are harmless and somewhat useful. This is the kind of language that one finds very frequently in the Prajnaparamita texts, that labels are useful as agreed-upon conventional tokens, but we're not content to leave them there. We believe in them. And that's always the problem. We start to believe in our own uh, thoughts. We start to believe our own thoughts are real and true and must be obeyed and must be acted on and give us an accurate picture of the world. One of my favorite slogans as a meditation teacher, and I'm always teaching people this, is just because you have a thought, which is unavoidable in any case, doesn't mean you need to believe in it. And most of our trouble is caused by believing in our thoughts, not by our thoughts, but by believing in them. Uh, in the early teachings, when um, the Buddha, when the teachings in the Second Noble Truth, the teachings on what are the things we cling to that deviate us from egolessness, from dwelling in the natural state of mind or our natural inherent enlightenment? What are the things that deviate us from being able to dwell in our inherent enlightenment? The third of the four is our beliefs and ideologies. And many teachers say, well, it's the thing that most stands, that blocks the student's progress on the path, belief systems, ideologies, clinging to beliefs. And sometimes it seems that there's nothing to which people cling to more fiercely than their beliefs about gender. Gender designations as conventional agreed-upon labels are harmless and somewhat useful. The problem lies with all the baggage that is imposed on the perception by long-standing training in conventional gender stereotypes. I mean, why else do we think we have to put pink blankets and blue blankets on them the second they come out? Because that's the beginning of long-standing training in conventional expectations about gender. And when you hear about parents who won't do that, for whatever reasons, we think the parents are at fault, that they're, they're, they're somehow um, very inappropriate with their kids. For example, thinking about my own experience, I know that I have a female body, And in my full-figured case, this is quite obvious to others as well. But that doesn't really give people much reliable information about me. Right? Doesn't even give people... Doesn't give people much reliable information about me. And no information that conforms me to the stereotypical female gender role. It does not mean that I must bear children, or even that I can. It doesn't mean that I necessarily have a gentle, non-aggressive demeanor (laughs) as opposed to a violent or nasty temperament. 
And I think a lot of my students would probably think that I'm mean because I'm tough. It doesn't It does not even guarantee my primary sexual orientation, which has been guessed wrong almost as often as it has been guessed right by both women and men. My female sex is not a reliable guide to my interests and concerns. I care little for many of the things that are supposed to interest women, but also I am interested in some things that are generally thought to be of more interest to women than to men. In short, though my sex may be the first fact about me that registers, it tells people relatively little about me. People debate, is it sex or race that registers first when you see see someone. Well, if in the scene there was only the scene, we would, rec- we, would, we would recognize a person's race, a person's gender, and leave it at that. There would be no imposition of any other stereotypes or assumptions onto that person because of what we've seen. And that's the training. That's the training that a meditator needs to undergo, that we stop projecting all of this extra stuff onto what is seen because what we project onto what is seen is what subverts enlightenment. We cling to, we believe in our projections, then the whole train gets started going again. In short, though my sex may be the first thing about me that registers, it tells people relatively little about me. Nevertheless, though my female body doesn't translate into anything essential about me, a great deal has been projected onto it by society, by religion, and by individuals who think that the shape of my body reveals something intrinsically existing, something on which it is valid to pin all sorts of meanings and limitations. So um, that's in a nutshell, how the prison of clinging to gender identity, whether one's own gender identity or the gender identity of someone else, um, subverts enlightenment. It's interesting that people seem to think that the somehow people become very frightened when that clarity about gender identity or the projections about gender identity are taken away from them. I once spent about a day teaching this kind of thing to a group, and at the end of the day, this very, very sweet young man put up his hand and he said, but without my mustache and my genitals, I wouldn't know who I am. And I said, bingo, you've got it. (laughs) Not knowing Not knowing is far closer to enlightenment and the natural state of mind than being certain about all sorts of conceptual conceptual things, about ideologies, about belief. Uh, And any, any good Dharma teacher should tell you that, that being too certain about conceptual beliefs, including Buddhist conceptual beliefs, turns out to be a problem in the long run. So um, going to that place of completely fresh mind where we don't live in all our presuppositions, 
That's what practice is about. Being there in that completely fresh, open mind that is ready to experience the world with, and the self without preconceptions, without labels, without norms. So, um, you know, the other side of that is that when we do cling to gender, gender identity, whether it's our own gender identity or the gender identity of people we interact with, that pretty much inevitably causes suffering. That's why I call what I talk about as the prison of gender roles. All those conventional beliefs we have about what it means to be a man or a woman, which are inculcated into us from the moment we are born, through the entire school system, through all of our educational systems, and very often by religious organizations as well, I call that the prison of gender roles. And um, if we want to use the F word, I've always defined feminism. What is the goal of feminism? It's freedom from the prison of gender roles. It's not creating a better, fairer, new set of gender roles. It's not saying uh, nice things about women now, because we used to say really nasty things about women, like that women can't become enlightened or women are distracting and therefore they have to be segregated because it's you know women's fault that they're distracting <laughs> etc cetera, etc cetera. it's not about that it's about freedom from the prison of gender roles freedom from needing to have all of these constructions and notions we look at someone and put this whole extra building on top of them and for someone of my age who was on the very front lines of the second wave of feminism in a field that is extremely male-dominated like religious studies, uh, I could tell you many, many stories about the suffering imposed by the prison of gender roles in academia, which is where I made my living, uh, in Buddhist organizations where people have often you know, just basically said, you know, if you didn't point out to us all of the patriarchy and all of the male dominance in Buddhism and all of the emphasis on gender roles in traditional Buddhism, I wouldn't notice it. <laughs> and then I'd be a lot happier because you don't let me ignore. And I'm happier when I can ignore. What, what kind of Buddhism is that? <laughs> I'm happier when I can ignore. Um, once when I was, I was teaching, I was teaching at a pretty advanced uh, Vajrayana three-month-long retreat, and I was asked to give a talk on Buddhism and gender. And one of the things I pointed out was in the liturgies we used at that center, there was still a lot of generic masculine in the chants, which means they were using the term man to stand for all human beings, and they were using the term he to stand for all human beings which is, you know, it's just so unreasonable that you should expect that what that's based on is a belief which is very deep-seated in many people, both women and men, that the normal human beings are men. And then women are something else. And gender is something only women possess. Men don't have gender. Men are normal human beings. 
And you see that all the time in conventional normal reactions in people, even after 20, 30 years of consciousness raising about gender. It hasn't changed very much. So I pointed out that in the liturgies we used every day at that center, people were still saying man and he when they meant people and you or they. And it was, you know, one of the ways the prison of gender roles survives so well is that so many people are so unconscious of it and so unaware of it. Ego always survives because of our unconscious presuppositions. And then that leads us into suffering. When we shine the, a very bright light on it, it kind of scuttles away like cockroaches. <laughs> but we don't shine that flashlight on a lot of our habitual patterns very often because we know if we shine the flashlight there, there's going to have to be some renunciation. We're going to have to change. And, you know, I didn't come to Buddhism to change. I came to Buddhism to be comfortable. Forgot about those three marks. They, that, that's easy. I'll forget that. So um, after the talk was over, a woman came up to talk to me. She was walking beside me. And she said to me, she said, you know, I never noticed that about the chants before. I never noticed that about our liturgy. And she said, I always really enjoyed doing the chants. You've spoiled it for me. Oh. So that's one little example of the way in which we tend to prefer ignoring to clear seeing and how hard it is to actually always be willing to see clearly. It's very, very hard to always be willing to see clearly and always to train ourselves to see yet more clearly. No matter how well we're doing now, we could probably always see more clearly. To see more clearly takes a willingness to drop our presuppositions and approach our world with a very fresh mind. That's what I think Suzuki Roshi meant when he talked about beginner's mind, which he said is full of promise and possibility, whereas the mind of the expert, the mind who knows what it means to be a man or a woman, that mind has, you might as well forget it, that mind can't do much of anything. Now, when you bring this kind of thing up in Buddhist circles, what a lot of teachers will say in many traditions is, but, but, enlightened mind is beyond gender. Enlightened mind is neither male nor female. So why are you fussing about all this stuff? Why sweat the small stuff? And the problem with that statement, of course, is that, well, yes, enlightened mind is beyond gender, neither male nor female, but Buddhist practitioners on the path are not there. Buddhist practitioners on the path are caught up in all sorts of confusion, which is why we're on the path. And so citing that slogan does absolutely nothing at all about male dominance in Buddhist institutions, which traditionally has been um, incredibly severe, it does nothing to correct people's tendencies to bring a whole load of presuppositions to the people they meet based on what shape they have happen to be. You can't go from 
the slogan, enlightened mind is beyond gender, neither male nor female, to actually realizing that on the spot and therefore being able to drop all talk about gender. You can't do that any more than the first time anyone comes into a meditation hall and is taught to meditate and is taught about the three marks of anatta, anicca, dukkha. They can drop their ego grasping. It doesn't happen the first time you hear meditation instruction. You can maybe get it conceptually after a while. Even to get it conceptually usually takes a while. To get it in our bones takes a lot longer, takes a lot of training. It's the same way with dropping our belief in the reality of gender or the ways in which we cling to gender identity. We aren't going to just drop it because someone says, oh, by the way, enlightened mind is beyond gender, so who cares about male dominance? It's not important. That's like a totally non-sequitur statement because enlightened mind is beyond gender, therefore... Uh, male dominance in social institutions or any other kind of lack of equity doesn't matter. Uh, I have a slogan that somewhat addresses some of that, what I'm trying to say here. Um, I often point out that, you know, Buddhists, Buddhists believe in egolessness. Buddhists are taught that egolessness is one of the basic marks of existence, that our suffering is caused by self-grasping, We all know that, and many of us believe it, even if we can't explain it well. We know, well, that's that's what Buddhists say. That's what Buddhist teachings say. But, um, you know, what tends to happen with this gender business is that um, people end up acting, saying to some extent, but acting even more, um, as if there is no permanent abiding self or ego Nevertheless, gender is real. That's how people act, believe, often what they say as well. Yes, there's no permanent abiding self, but gender is real. Gender is important, even though there's no permanent abiding self. And to put that more succinctly, what you end up saying is that egolessness is gendered. So on one hand, we say enlightened mind is beyond gender, but we're also saying at the same time, but because gender is real, egolessness is gendered. A statement that makes no sense, but that captures the absurdity of clinging to rigid and fixed gender norms while affirming egolessness. It seems to me that only one element of that motto can actually be adhered to because its two elements are mutually exclusive. What is more important to us? egolessness and enlightenment or the security of conventional norms about gender. Most of the time our conventional beliefs are about security and um, not having to encounter the world freshly and without a lot of um, presuppositions about what it means for me. We're not really that willing to see in the seen, only the seen, to hear in the heard, only the heard, to sense in the sensed, only the sensed. For our cognitions to be only our cognitions and not to morph into ideologies or beliefs. Our cognitions very easily morph into ideologies and beliefs. And I think regarding race for sure, class 
gender, which is what I've worked on, our, our, our cognitions so quickly and so easily morph into ideologies and beliefs and then we're off to the races. We have imprisoned ourselves in the prison of gender roles. We imprison everyone we meet in the prison of gender roles. And we cause ourselves and others tremendous suffering. So this is what I have to say about how clinging to gender identity subverts enlightenment. And what I think is important about this is that, you know, Buddhists have done a lot of work philosophically to deconstruct ego. That's one of the primary... Abhidhamma is about deconstructing ego. Madhyamaka is about deconstructing ego. Buddhist thought is about deconstructing ego. It's incomprehensible to me that all that thought about deconstructing ego has never taken seriously the level at which ego resides in our gender norms and our gender expectations. Buddhists have just not taken that seriously. And it's, it's, it's astronomical to me that that's happened. But nevertheless, when we think about it, I think we have to see clinging to gender really does subvert enlightenment. Clinging to gender identity really does. What I think is important about what I'm saying is that this is a Buddhist rationale for destroying the prison of gender roles. It's a Buddhist rationale for it. It's part of dharma. It's part of truly understanding egolessness. As we know, truly understanding and living out of egolessness does not in any way prohibit us from sane and compassionate acts in the world. And in the same way, not clinging to gender roles anymore is not in any way going to inhibit us from sane and kind and decent relationships with one another, no matter what kind of shape their body happens to have. But with what I'm trying to say, we no longer have to rely on secular um, human rights, not that there's anything wrong with secular human rights theory, but we no longer have to rely on that as Buddhists to free ourselves from the prison of gender roles which means that Buddhists can no longer say, oh, that's not really Dharma. That's something else you're bringing into Dharma. That's Western thought you're bringing into Dharma. It's not Western thought I'm bringing into Dharma. It's the full genuine Dharma of no longer going beyond what is seen, what is heard, what is sensed, what is cognized, and not going beyond any of those things into ideologies, beliefs, conventions, therefore no longer constructing a you there or a me here, a you here, and just that, what does the text put it, just that is the end of stress, using of course Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation of nirvana, uh, of stukha as stress and nirvana as unbinding. So that clock says 10.45 and this one says 10.44. I think that means we're at the end of the talk. Um, it looks like there's a few people who'd like to ask questions, but we can only take about a minute or two. Um, it's very hard to do this in 45 minutes. Um, Rita, um, an obvious question that comes to mind, I'm sure more than I have had this question. So um, if the Buddhist, Buddha was so reluctant to ordain women, uh, how enlightened could he have been? Well, you've a, heard that before. 
that's a different way of putting the question than I usually get. Actually, that text is highly suspect as to whether it's from the Buddha or whether it's much later, an interpolation into the text. It, it's, it doesn't fit with the rest of the comments the Buddha made about the fourfold Sangha consisting of monks, nuns, lay men, lay women. And most people think that, most scholars think that probably is not an authentic Buddha Vachana. The question of um, how enlightened the Buddha could be if he still made gender discriminations, uh, actually the text, I don't have time to quote them, but the texts that I have at hand portray the Buddha as saying exactly the same things about men and women and how they get caught in either masculinity or femininity, and exactly the same things about what their problems are regarding clinging to gender norms. So that's, um, you know, the problem that a lot of teachers don't seem to have been very clear on the problem of clinging to gender identity. Um, I think our understanding of what entraps us changes as we as the situations change. Um, you know, for example, in, if you read the texts, the ancient texts carefully, it's very clear that desire was the problem they were working on. People were very attracted to things. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we live in a very aggressive culture. We are much more prone to aversion than we are to clinging and there's very little there's very little that in, in the old texts that really addresses um, this incessant aggression that is so obvious in our culture. So I think that you know the Dharma always has to be presented in terms that are relevant in contemporary times. Otherwise, we just end up clinging to thousand-year-old formulations of the Dharma, and that doesn't necessarily help us. Uh, one, I guess, one more. Hi, thank you. Uh, yesterday, I was not able to come, and so I assume you may have shared some specific practices or insight in how to, to bring this into the practice, and, and that's sort of a, a question that comes up. Is it just to to have this awareness and then uh, do the same sort of practices that we would always do in that, yeah, or practice, do you have something specific? The practice that one does on the cushion stays the same. There's a lot of analytical work that one does and a lot of contemplation that one does, and a lot of checking one's own presuppositions and one's reactions. A lot of that work has to be done in daily life because we can be very nice and peaceful on the cushion and then what happens when we get up? You know, we all know that. So we have to, we have to actually do Dharma 24-7, period. Um, and that requires study, analysis, contemplation. Um, if you can arrange it, one of the most instructive things, or if it happens to you, look at your mind. When you run into someone and you're not sure of their gender, that's very, very instructive. Watch your mind. Watch how quickly... You people tend to become uncomfortable. i got to pin something on that person. I can't just rest in openness. 
something that is very interesting. Um, once I was invited to Finland to a conference, and I had to correspond with people to arrange this conference by email for over a year. And of course, I couldn't tell from the names whether I was corresponding <laughs> with a man or a woman. Very instructive. I found out very quickly. I did not need to know. It, didn't, it was totally superfluous, unnecessary knowledge. And the more we can cultivate that mind, the better off we are. I sometimes think it's very unfortunate that in our society, men and women dress so differently and wear their hairstyles so differently because it reinforces this very quick. She's a woman, I know about her. And it's the speed with which we assume we know about that person that's the problem. So I think um, it's now past 10.45, and I think I do need to bring this to an end. Um, it's obviously a very deep topic and one that requires a lot more uh, analysis and contemplation than anyone can do in 45 minutes. So thank you for your attention this morning. Thank you for inviting me. And, you know, maybe I'll be back someday. <laughs>